0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Shoot Hub podcast. My name is George Brown and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs and Shoot Hub and I'm joined by Digby Taylor who looks after all the shoots and estate and basically all things Shoot Hub. Uh, Digby, we've been talking about this day for quite a long time and we're finally here recording our first episode. you excited? I'm really excited, George. Ever
1: since we recorded the first bird flu special for Guns on Pegs podcast a few months ago, we've been asked by Shoot's. Um, every now and then in conversations when we'd start something more and uh, and get a bit of a regular shoot hub podcast going. So yeah, really excited. Uh,
0: so since this is our first episode, um, we'd probably just better do a quick explanation about what the plan is. Um, it's basically a podcast aimed at anyone who's got some sort of interest in the running of a shoot, whether it's a knockabout farm shoot or a DIY syndicate or, you know, a big private estate or a commercial operation. Um You could be the owner or a keeper, an underkeeper, a keen syndicate member, or you might just be interested in what goes on behind the scenes on shoots uh, and what goes into putting on a day's shooting. We're going to talk about mostly quite practical stuff um, and hopefully provide some useful tips and hopefully have a bit of fun along the way. Um, and because Digby and I haven't got any particular expertise in running shoots, in that we don't really do it, um, each episode will have a special guest, uh, an expert in their field, an expert at a different aspect of running a shoot. Um, so, Digby, why don't you introduce our first ever Shoot Hub podcast guest?
1: Yeah, first of all, George, I think you've undersold yourself a little bit there. You do uh, do have a little knock around on the farm, don't you? <laughs> Well, yeah, but I don't really do anything, It's but mostly my brother. <laughs> it's also hard to call a shoot like that a shoot. But anyway, <laughs> I am delighted to be the one to introduce our very first guest. Today, we're joined by one of the country's leading game bird vets, Dr. Kenny Nutting. What Kenny doesn't know about game birds isn't worth knowing. During the last few years as director of St. David's, he's found himself right at the forefront of many of the issues the game sector has had to deal with, not least bird flu, Welcome, Kenny, to the Shoot Hub podcast. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to it. Right. So, Kenny, to help
0: our listeners uh, to get to know you a little bit, we're going to start off with some kind of quick fire, either or type questions. All you've got to do is pick one. Uh, no explanations required, just whatever comes to your mind first. So, um, I'll do the first one uh, beating or picking up? Oh, beating, without a doubt.
1: Pheasant or partridge? yeah pheasant boy through and through uh exmoor or yorkshire uh i'm a southern boy to exmoor <laughs> i knew you'd say that uh, <laughs> walked, up, uh, walked up or driven can i say both that's not allowed i'm afraid <laughs> Driven.
2: <laughs> driven. Uh, labradors or spaniels uh as i have two spaniels it's got to be a
1: spaniel oh are you a cocker or a springer man Uh, i'm I'm a cocker yeah i wouldn't want those mad things no thanks lovely very nice um (laughs) slow gin or dams and vodka uh
2: obviously my own slow gin absolutely very good
0: uh roast pheasant or venison casserole uh roast pheasant eat what i shoot wellies or boots wellies uh wales or scotland Oh, I love Scotland. Try and get away up there most years. It's
1: just epic up there. Sorry to all the Welsh listeners, but <laughs> finally
0: <laughs> I
2: well I work in Wales all the time, so that's what for me is a, a bit of a work area whereas, you know, Scotland is like uh let's just just get away from it all. So yeah.
1: And finally fishing or shooting? I think I know the answer to this one. It's definitely shooting. Even though you work in it, I, I think uh you still you still got a love for it. Yeah, the passion is there. I love it absolutely. Any of those you feel like you've got a burning desire to clarify? I think you've already, already dodged a bullet the bullet on Welsh the one. Wales or Scotland.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely the Wales one. No, I like Wales. It's just, um, yeah, Scotland is, is like a holiday destination to get away from it, for sure.
1: Very nice. Very nice. Now, Kenny, moving on to slightly more serious things. Um, your name comes about, up in conversations with um, shoots I speak to. Probably more than anybody else's. That you've got. There's For a little reasons bit, or bad. <laughs> I was say, a, <laughs> bit of, a bit of a whisper. We're talking about something, and then one of the you know keepers or shoot owners will say, "Well, Kenny Nutting said it's this, so <sighs> therefore it must be true." And that shuts down the conversation and makes me feel rather silly. But um, <laughs> how how do you feel um, being referred to as the source of all bird flu wisdom? Um, uh,
2: do you know what? I, I I enjoy it. I I enjoy. Um, uh, trying to be at the top of my game, uh, so to speak, uh, I enjoy making sure I've got facts and the science, not just the hearsay. I mean, as we both, as we all know, our, our sector is, is full of rumors, um, and rumors are sparked up every five minutes. So it's quite good to kind of do a bit of myth busting on those side of things. Um, and my role within the practice, uh, as well as that being director of game, uh, sadly, I've got the AI director role. So, um, it is also my job, uh, within the practice to make sure that I'm ahead of, ahead of all the knowledge so that I can both guide our, our vets who then guide our customers, but also the customers I deal with directly as well. So yeah, no, I, I don't mind it. I, I, I dare I say, I don't want to say I enjoy dealing with bird flu because that would be wrong. But you know, it's, it's good to be the top of the, top of the field as much as I can be.
1: I tell you what, the rumors we all hear going round are quite something, are they? I expect you've probably heard from someone else that you said something that you've never said before. (laughs) I've certainly been quoted as saying something that has never left my mouth, I'm 100% sure.
2: Yes, yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's probably my job to say uh, some sometimes controversial or ask. I think it's my job to ask controversial questions uh, that make people think to keep forward moving and learning what we're doing. Um, and yeah, that comes with a bit of flack and some heat sometimes, but you know, you just got to roll with the bunches.
0: Yeah. So Kenny, we, we'd originally asked you on to talk about sort of over into overwintering birds and setting up a rearing field for next year. But obviously bird flu has changed the conversation a bit. Um, perhaps it would be worth, just giving a quick update on the situation that we're in now, what's changed over the last, I don't know, month, six weeks, that kind of time period.
2: Sure, sure. Um, so first of all, I think when you start off with saying there is still a lot of positivity out there for um, for setting up uh, game farms and flocks and expanding. Um, there's also obviously some nervousness. Um So the current situation is that obviously we are the bird flu has continued through the summer. So that's the first kind of starting point where we've never had that before. Uh, Now that has happened in other countries, uh, many countries across the world that happens uh, with different strains, sometimes the same strain. So um, that's the kind of the first tipping point, really, where normally we get a break in the summer when when we're off rearing, uh, we can move things freely, and there's no concerns or risks. Um, Because we think the pop the the natural um population of birds within the uk has has got this kind of h5n1 circulating it and what we call is endemic so it becomes endemic in the in the national flock if you like so um because it's been developing through summer as we've hit winter or autumn um and those migratory birds start to come down we're already on the ground running so we are having more cases than we've ever seen um Probably about six weeks ago, we had that kind of hotspot down in the southwest, that kind of Devon Cornwall Somerset, which is why they brought in that regional AIPZ, so yeah. Avian Influenza Prevention Zone. Um, and that's just about making sure that biosecurity is up to date and, and you, you're being proactive about it. Um, so, that, yeah, there were some zones with that, um, but it's definitely died down, um, dare I say plateaued. Um, we haven't seen any more zones open in about two weeks and we've seen zones close and merge, which is great. Uh, sadly, the uh, customers in East Anglia are seeing the opposite of that. So they are, um, they have a regional AIPZ, which was brought in about three weeks ago. They've now also got a regional housing order, which means all the birds have to be housed uh, that are poultry. So anything in an enclosure has to be uh, housed. Um and those zones are sadly increasing on a day-to-day basis. So it is is—it's very tough in that area. There's no two ways about it. Um, and they are going through that cycle. So all we can do is hope that that cycle starts to slow down and, and burn itself out before it takes too much of the poultry with them, really. Uh,
0: and is there any rhyme or reason as to why those two areas should have been hot spots? Is it anything to do with the geography or is it just pure, you know, blind bad luck or
2: um uh, there's a couple of theories um for sure uh there is there is a the difficulty that normally during the summer months defra spends all their time money and effort um looking back at what's happened so we can learn to move forward um obviously with having to, to deal with birds through the summer they've had less time uh, available to them to be able to kind of analyze and understand that so there are a lot of questions being unanswered but unfortunately that is the nature of the beast. Um, there are some thoughts that um, because of the coastal nature of the birds in those areas, uh, and their breeding sites that because of the bird fluent is endemic in that population that they're kind of cycling on the cliffs. And so that kind of has been a general right, rumble yeah. on because those numbers of wild birds have continued to be found sadly through, through the entire summer in those regions. Um, and because it was hot, uh, certainly talking to the keepers, they've said they've never seen so many different types of birds around reservoirs ponds lakes where mm. those natural sources of water um have been dried up because it was one of the driest summers on record so I'm, I'm sure that has an influence without a doubt but there's a two or three other theories but until we get the science behind it we don't fully know and we won't know for a period of time really yeah
1: interesting Very interesting. interesting um and uh, i mean certainly something i've been hearing a lot of is a certain amount of concern about supply of game for next year so people are saying okay this year it might come to me it might not there's not a huge amount we can do um to to stop it you know if, if you get it you get it kind of thing maybe maybe you maybe you hate to hear that kenny is a vet, but um <laughs> but they're more they're thinking okay what can we do for the longer term what's going to happen next year um where are we going to get our game from next year um, is this gonna be are we gonna see a similar thing that we saw in France last year happening in the UK or France earlier this year happening in the UK next year? Um, and what can we do about it? Um so what is the the broad scale outlook for next the next rearing season? And for shoots that are asking that question, what would you what would you say? Sure. Um I'm gonna try
2: and pin this down to a couple of minutes. Um so um <laughs> a <Yeah. laughs> uh, big question. Um I think the first thing to do is is that we've all got to look at our businesses as absolute businesses, you know, some so there are some people out there that enjoy it. And and it's a, uh, they take a bit of a punt, And sometimes it's a bit of a hobby that's got a bit bigger. But we have to really manage these, these are businesses, and we have to um, look at reducing that risk. So this is a conversation I have with, with the customer base on a daily basis, three, four times a day. And we're just looking at all the different angles that we can reduce the risk to the business. So one of the risks is increasing the number of suppliers you, as as, a, as a, either as a shoot or, or as a game farmer, have. Now, as vets, I've always we we always say you know reduce the number of sources so you've got less risk of disease transfer on site. It makes sense, but we have to change with the times, and this is one of those moments we've got to just tweak our advice. And it may be for the next couple of years whilst we we get through this kind of uh, birth value, is that we have three, four, five, six different sources of, of chicks and eggs or poults on site. And that, sadly, is a way of making sure we protect the business. It might not help from other diseases like I don't know, rotavirus or hexameter, but from a protection of your business point of view, it's going to be the best way forward. Um,
1: can, can you put that into practice for a, let's say you're a shoot releasing 6,000 poults? Sure. Um, so...
2: So you would, if you were doing 6,000, you would say, okay, let's, let's stick with the guy I've, or, or lady that I've been dealing, the game farm that I've been dealing with for the past three or four years, giving me great birds. Great. Let's stick with them. Um, but I'm also going to do maybe 2000 with somebody else and a thousand with somebody else. And, and you, you'd, you'd want to do it outside of those geographical areas, but also you'd, you'd need to understand where your game farmer is getting those supply of eggs and chicks from because if all three sources that you choose have all got them from france and france collapses then you're not better off you've got to understand the system of supply and think well actually that guy that farm over there is getting it from spain this this farm's from uk and that farm's from portugal then i've split my risk pretty good and that's that's the approach you'll look
0: at and, and actually you know we asked a question about this in the um Uh, shoot on a census this year didn't we diggers and and the results were pretty surprising that most of the people responding to that survey assumed that their birds had originated from the uk very few people were even aware that you know chicks and eggs were coming in from france or used to come in you know had been coming in from france so i think you know that's a really important key message to take away for people is you know know where those birds originate from and by that we mean not just who Hatched them and reared them, but where those eggs came from or where those chicks came from in the first place.
2: And I think that's that's justifiable, isn't it? You know, um if you're spending thirty thousand, forty thousand, hundred thousand on a vehicle, you, you you do one of those AA vehicle checks. You'd have your insurance documents. You'd have every MOT certificate, and you want to know exactly what that car's been through before you spend that money. So I think that's, that's all part of it. And certainly, you know, the, the, that's part of the auditing that is, uh, that is moving forward, um, it's traceability, um, but it's, it's protection also from both sides, you know, the game farm can stand strong and say, I know where my supply is, I'm proud of this, this is what's happening. Um, and I don't think we should be concerned with giving that information. Um, we should be proactive and proud of what we're doing and that we're achieving.
0: Yeah. Uh- so, Kenny, with any luck, and it still remains to be seen, but uh, there should be a wide variety of shoots represented in our audience, fingers crossed. Um, and uh, some of the mitigation strategies available to people um, are going to be more appropriate for some of them than others. So when it comes to like the big shoot operations, those that have got the financial ability and maybe the manpower to take their rearing in-house, if you've got any particular advice that you'd give to them beyond uh some of the beyond what you've already discussed in terms of you know multiple sources of birds
2: sure um i think my first point would be it's never as easy as it looks um (laughs) it's very very easy to say let's let's buy 20 sheds uh and and the keeper well we're employing the keeper anyway so you know what's what's an extra bit of rearing um you know it is hard work there is no two ways about it. It is hard work, um, as we know. We're in a national labour shortage, um, so trying to to find the staff to, or even casual labour, sometimes to to fill those difficult um, uh, muscle heavy jobs is is, is difficult. But um, it can be really rewarding, without a doubt. Um, you can have, within certain degree, an understanding of exactly what those birds have got coming with them. Um, I think. If it's planned right, you can invest in buildings and infrastructure that can always be used for something else. If if five years down the line, you decide to not row anymore, those buildings can be used. So I've got other customers that are building more permanent structures that could be rented out later down the line. So, yes, there's a certain level of investment. But it's a split investment cost because you are you're using those vi- those buildings later down the line. Is there. that
1: uh, rented out to, for other rearers or is Airbnb's <laughs> for the holiday? in <laughs> South
2: <laughs> Yes, uh, a mixture. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so really, if I if I'm a, if I'm a large uh, shoot or, or money is within reason, no object. Then yes, rearing is is absolutely possible. Um, it's not an easy ride, but it does help give some security. Um, do you go the whole hog and do a, a hatchery with a laying stock and a rearing stock onto your chute? Now that, that's a big undertaking. Um, and, and also, you know, from a bird flu point of view, it represents more risk because if you've got everything on one place and, and you have to go under restrictions or God forbid you get bird flu, then you've potentially put a lot of other aspects of your business at risk. So, Certainly, you'd want to spread that out. And I think the first thing to do is just take little steps and say, right, I'm going to do some rearing. And that's the step to take. And then get a couple of years under your belt or a year and you think, actually, you know what, that is working, got a great guy on the ground, he knows what he's doing, or she knows what she's doing. Um, and actually, therefore, let's, let's look at doing some laying stock because I want to be more self-sufficient. And I've I've got a lot of customers out there that are looking at becoming more self-sufficient. Uh, to just to help protect their business but they're looking at having a hatchery 10 kilometers away uh, a, a rearing setup and then their shoot and they're spray, spacing that out but but that does have costs and and, and and presumably
1: they've spent years rearing from chicks anyway so yeah um, there's, a,
2: there's a bit of yeah, there's uh, experience. A step ahead. Yeah. yeah 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 for sure
1: what about the guys who um the people who are saying um let's look abroad. There are a ha- there are a number of people who've rung me up saying, "How do I set up a game farm abroad?" And I say, "I don't know. Ask Kenny."
2: And <laughs> we <laughs> sure, thank you for that. And we've had we've had some interesting discussions and meetings. Right,
1: from it. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for you guys, but um, but I spe- expect some of them are. Um, it was just a bit of a flash in the pan. Let's think about it. There might be sure. an opportunity to make some money. Some of them might genuinely be thinking, actually, this is a longer term sensible. Solution. What do you, um, what have you said to those people? Uh, this is quite, again, quite complex. Um, and I'm trying
2: not to be a politician. Um, so, I mean, basically, <laughs> basically uh, you, you've got to look at it from how do you physically get that product, whether it's a, a hot, uh, whether it's um, a living, breathing bird, a chick or an egg, how do you get that product to the UK? Um, and obviously, Anywhere in Europe is a risk of bird flu. I don't think there's really what more risk than others. You know, if you set up a game farm in the middle of a highly stocked, poultry-dense area, you are at higher risk. But is there any real high risk between, say, France, Spain, Hungary? Probably not. If you look at the map and, and, and the spread of wild birds that they found in positive cases, the whole of Europe is a risk. Um, so you've got to look at that logistics uh then you've got to look at um how do i get those what sort of testing i've got to do in order to get those chicks or eggs across um and then of course there's, there's the transport so we know that we can transport eggs pretty well if they get delayed there's little to no change um so long as the eggs have not been cooked for instance or frozen as we did this year um but uh if if you're transporting whole birds if you think right i'm going to go to czech republic and i'm going to rear five hundred thousand birds and i'm going to bring them across to the uk it's a long journey there are restrictions you've got to provide certain amounts of space and food and drink um and also you've got to think about the sadly the people who don't like what we do they will try and put barriers mm. in your way and that's certainly what we found have found previously with the chicks in france you know they they put pressure on the transport ferries, which is now why French, the French moved a lot of their hatcheries to the UK um, to, to mitigate that risk. So I, I think you've got to think about the logistical nightmare that can be bringing in anything live from Europe. Uh, the Spanish have been doing very well, to be honest. I think they've got a, a good niche set up and process, um, but but it carries a risk, without a doubt.
1: And I, I guess with anything, there's um, an opportunity for some people absolutely to, to make the most of it.
2: I mean, you can absolutely do it. Um, you, you can get, you know, in, in, in um, some Czech Republic, for instance, uh, there isn't a labour shortage. Um, so actually, that that is a positive. Uh, and one of the guys mm-hmm. was, was talking about that. Um, and if you you know, there was a, a couple of people thinking about Morocco, because it's outside of the EU, and therefore third country to third country transfer can sometimes be easier. Um, so, you know, there is opportunities, um, so long as, you know, list trust doesn't continue to
1: tank our economy. There's a lot, of I, bet, I <laughs> bet you wouldn't mind a couple of holidays in Morocco as well. Kenny, <laughs> Yeah,
2: but I think, I think a lot of the European countries, uh, the, the current supplies have sort of woken up to, uh, us as, as a potential market and there are opportunities out there for, for mutual understanding. I was in Hungary two weeks ago, looking and talking to a supplier out there, looking at their stock, how they do things. Is it good enough for one of my suppliers? Um, and and a few other countries out there as well. So, you know, there is definitely movement out there and potential opportunities.
0: And I guess at the opposite end of the scale, there'll be people who have maybe had their fingers burned uh, this last year with their stock coming in from Europe. And they'll be thinking, well, I'm not taking that chance again. Um so you know we we're pretty confident. There's lots of people thinking about overwintering this year. Um, what are the like? The, what's the what are the risks versus the rewards of that from your standpoint?
2: Um, uh, I think the rewards can often outweigh the risks, um, but it is looking at those risks um, without a doubt. Um, so I'd say that the decisions on whether to overwinter has been made because those birds are in the system. Um, so. There are a lot more overwinter stock than we've ever had before. The, I would would say there's been a few few people wavering um, that you know there was birth flu struck in their area. They panicked a little bit, and, and there was dispersal of some of those
1: plants. I've seen I've seen a bit of that. I was going to ask what, <laughs> what you made of that. Is that is that people just panicking and thinking, "Oh, help it could come to me." Let's yeah. Get rid of the it, stock now.
2: Uh, and it's understandable. You know, they are, there are risks. If you've got livestock, there are risks. Um, so one of the risks is that if you've got laying flock, um, and they come down with bird flu and they're near to your rearing field that, uh, once those birds are culled, um, you have to do a primary cleaning, then a secondary cleaning. And then, uh, then you might be able to stock birds there or you can choose because of the costs implications, you might choose to not stock birds for 12 months. So suddenly, you could jeopardize your hatchery and or rearing setup because of your laying flock getting bird food. So there are those kind of risks. Um, and that's certainly why some people have chosen to not overwinter. And I, and I, and I get that, I think, um, however, as an overall approach, there are more people that have overwintered than ever before, which is great. Um, you know, from a being self sufficient point of view, so giving uh some positivity to your supply chain, to the shoots that you give to that you know you're putting that effort in. Um it, it is a lot of effort. Don't get me wrong, those those game farmers that do their overwinter stock, it is a constant job throughout the winter. Um, which is again great for employment. Um and it does give certain disease benefits. Um, so with overwintered stock, you can do some testing. You can vaccinate if you choose to, um, and do other things. So you know that that stock is, um, in better commas, as clean as is possible, or you know exactly what it's got rather than caught up stock where it's just a 50-50 chance of what you might get. Um, or relying on others that have stock, and you have no idea what they have or haven't got, or you don't know if you can trust them. If it's your own stock and overwintered, it absolutely has so many benefits. Um, but of course, we've got to make sure that that is passed on, is that, that that effort and um, time and 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 disease status is passed on as a cost to everybody to the supply chain, because it is a hell of a, a hell of an ask and a risk for those people. Um, the good news is that um, if you were sadly struck with bird flu, there is a great compensation scheme by DEFRA, uh, which the GFA, the Game Farmers Association, do an excellent work in making sure that that is up to date with up to date costs. And it was only reevaluated and released um, about two weeks ago. Um, and if you look at it, it's a sliding scale. So, you know, if you put in the effort of overwintering, and you've got them to February, for instance, and they and unfortunately they came down with bird flu, that cost of feeding through the, through the winter and potential egg loss is taken into account. Um, uh, so interesting, it, yeah. It's, it's actually a really good system, and DEFRA are really fair, um, and you can you can make it work and survive as a business. So yes, it is a risk having the, the laying stock, but there are compensation mechanisms in place to help mitigate that
1: risk. Well, there we go. I didn't didn't know that. That's really yeah, interesting. No. Yeah, very. But they have to be. They have to be um, captive birds for that to happen. They're not. People aren't being compensated for birds that are dying on shoots now. So is that right?
2: sadly, not because at that point they are they are wild birds, and that that's quite a good, good point to be. Um, there's. It is a dif- defining point. The moment that pop hole is open, that becomes a wild bird, and no legislation and no compensation is applicable to that bird. But if the birds are still in the release pen, it, there's again there's another sliding scale um, that that bird you can get compensation for that bird if DEFRA have to come along and cull those birds in the release pen if the popholes are shut. So up to that final point, the popholes open, you can get compensation.
1: Very interesting. Oh, that's yeah. good. Good on the GFA and. They, yeah, done, they do a
2: lot it. of work on there behind the scenes and it and that's really important because it's, as you say, it's something that nobody thinks about, but when it comes to push comes to shove and you unfortunately get bird flu, that is going to be what saves you. So without a doubt, they are, yeah, it's really good.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what about the, that, that's George's question started off about the the large sort of commercial shoots with a bit of money behind them. What about George's shoot? I'm asking on his behalf. Um, <laughs> how many do you release George? A thousand? Uh, not even that, yeah, yeah, five hundred this year normally be more
0: like eight, but yeah,
2: sure. I mean that that is that is a difficult one, isn't it? because um, the it those kind of shoots, even up to I don't know, let's say five thousand, and I think less than five thousand, it is a difficult one because there's often not full-time staff or the opportunity to have full-time staff to look after birds, and that is really difficult. So you're you're kind of on the hobby end, but not quite the hobby end. You know, the birds need full time care investment, but maybe the staff isn't there available all the time to do that. So it is really difficult. So to be honest, less than five thousand. It is hard work rearing and probably not worthwhile. Um You are probably better in those instances and splitting, splitting risk and, and doing it across two different game farms or something like that. Um, who, who do that? I mean, yeah, you know, if you've got a, a, a couple of old boys and retired, got plenty of time on the hands, they want to rear 500,000 birds, great. Nothing stops them. <laughs> you know, enjoy it. Um, I, I, um, I grew up on, um, on a, on a small shoot and they did 3,000 and we did some rearing and it was great fun. Uh, it was real com- sort of camaraderie and helping each other out. And that's great if you've got that support network, but often there isn't. So it, it is better to, to buy in and, and split your risk in that point. They have got some instances of smaller shoots um, uh, working together, almost in a cooperative. So I've got a yeah. small th- three shoots that are, one saying, "Well, I'll keep a couple of hundred hens." The other saying, "Well, I can do the hatching bit," and one saying, "Well, I can do the rearing." So I think you know, if if that opportunity represent presents itself, great. Why not?
1: Suggest yeah. that to your father, George. And- <laughs> <laughs>
0: dad doesn't hold any control whatsoever I'd have to get it past my brother and I think that he would probably uh, agree that buying impulse is the way to go (laughs)
1: 100% it's now a good time to have a have a quick pause George and have the first of our regular segments so listeners to the Guns on Pace podcast will know that we get a lot of correspondence from the audience so we wanted to give you lot a chance to get involved too this segment is called beating noise of the day we're going to ask listeners to send in your favorite beating noise as a voice note via Instagram or your favorite platform. And we're going to ask our guest, Kenny, to name, classify and rate one noise every episode. So this noise has been sent in by Chris from Hertfordshire. Play the noise, George. <laughs> Play it again. <laughs> I think that might have come as a bit of a surprise, Kenny. Play it again, George. We can... <laughs> um I'm gonna
2: well I I'm I'm gonna split it's a fifty fifty between um pissed up at the pub on Friday night and a bit of beating. So
1: I am gonna go what, what was the second one, Chris? Uh sorry, Kenny. Uh, piss up or
2: or be de- a bit of beating, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it puts me in mind of the Houses of Parliament, doesn't it? They when they're all trying to show their approval. But it is an absolute classic, that one, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Kenny, you said um, earlier that you were beating over picking up. Um, what's you? What's your, what's your um, noise of choice? <laughs> The beating line. <laughs> <laughs> not, this is
2: not for public consumption, surely. I mean, oh God, I, I make. I don't know. I use. A, 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 I do a bit of whistling. I make the i i i i i. Uh, it sounds sort of yeah, as a, like I sound like a pirate, to be honest. um Yeah. I don't know. I think you do all. Oh, I, I feel quite self-conscious now on this, doing this. But to be honest, when you're in the bridge, you just <laughs> it's make, okay. No oh, one's it's listening. Don't
0: worry. No one's listening. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I, lots of different noises i think to be honest but yeah
0: okay so i think a classification for that as the pirate is there's definitely a kind of family of beating noises that are inherently piratical aren't they so i think that's our first class of beating noise and we're calling that one pissed up at the pub um so all we need now is a score out of 10 for that particular sound oh.
2: Uh, I think it could, be, it could have been louder, so I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with the seven, yeah, average seven, Excellent. Chris.
1: Seven, seven out of ten from Kenny. Um, good <laughs> luck on your uh, your next shoot day in Hertfordshire, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So, moving, I mean, that was all very silly, wasn't it? But, um, <laughs> um, Kenny, obviously, you get out and about a, a fair amount of visiting shoots around the country. Um, Diggers and I were chatting earlier, um, about this. Uh, from a from a vet's perspective, what's like the one simple thing that most shoots could or should be doing uh, to improve their shoot? Uh,
2: from, from what angle? Sorry, is this from a bird flu angle, or is this from a no, just from a
0: general view? veterinary angle?
2: A general veterinary angle. Oh, what could they do? Um, do you know what? It's quite simple. It's just look at what you're doing. And question yourself why am i doing this so it can be something as simple as um i've seen uh somebody feeding uh trail feeding uh in the same part of the pen and i said you know why are we doing that there um i don't know really i just always have um i guess it's questioning yourself and thinking well actually if i if I maybe used hoppers, or if I moved it around a bit, would it attract more birds? Uh, would the feed go less stale? All those kind of things, really. So yeah, for me, it's, it's just asking yourself, why are you doing each individual job? Uh, I've got a um, a mate who's a, a head keeper at a shoot, um, a, a large commercial shoot. And he he's always asking me, like, why are you giving that advice? And it's, although it's really good because it makes me think and think, no, I do know why I'm giving that advice. I absolutely do know. Um, But it does keep me on my toes. And I think it's important that, you know, a lot of these guys and ladies, they are out and about by themselves, day to day, which is great. They enjoy that. Um And I get that. But it is very easy for anybody in in, in any job that you're on your own to get into a rut, isn't it? And And you think... Actually, that's not improving anything. Let's just ask: Why are we doing something, and how? Why not change it? Why not
0: see if and, it does better? And shooting is sort of inherently small C conservative as well, isn't it? So we probably do suffer more than other uh, other activities from a bit of inertia. And it's just it is just the way I've always done it. You know, I've done it like that for fifteen years, and it always seems to have worked. So why why would I think about doing it differently? I probably don't even think that that question. Yeah. It's just yeah yeah. If it ain't broke, don't almost. fix it.
1: A, yeah. great, um, a great shooter and a friend of mine up in Yorkshire says the golden ratio of keeper to owner or keeper to manager should be, um, you should have one under 30 and one over 50 or something like that. So you've got the young chap um, questioning the older uh, yeah. person and the older person with the wisdom and experience being able to say, oh no, that w- we've done that for a reason, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was quite insightful.
2: I think that's that's really key, actually, and I can imagine several of the keepers that I know thinking, "Yeah, it is good having those younger ones uh, snapping at my heels," um, but but sometimes it needs the older boys to just say, "No, no, no, that that won't work. We we've tried that and it was a disaster." And that's yeah, that's experience, isn't it?
1: And I guess um, similarly to George's question, what is the mistake you see that just makes you want to tear your hair out most? commonly on uh, on shoots <laughs> <laughs> how long have we got <laughs> oh
2: ah uh, god yeah um i i think it's uh saving a penny and spending a pound um i think things like um pushing the birds onto wheat quickly um because you know i could save a ton of pellet um but it, it was poor quality wheat and the birds wandered off because it was boring as hell Why on earth do you want to eat that um and so you'd lose more birds or they got a disease such as you know hexameter or something so then you lose 20 or 30 birds where you you've doubled the cost of that that one yeah. ton of pellet you saved so little things like that there are ways to be more efficient don't get me wrong absolutely there are ways but um trying to cut corners in my books it, it, it just never works Um yeah interesting, interesting. The
1: feed one is a, something that people come back to again and again um you must have spoken to uh, to jamie horner at Marsden a <laughs> few <Yeah>. times <laughs>
2: i think the feed i think that's something that will be very different moving forward um you know a lot of these diseases have always been transferred fecal orally so so the bird gets a virus or bacteria uh, it goes around its system it defecates that out um and then that the next bird comes along and is pecking around with wheat on the floor and picks up that disease and has it it's the same for hexameter, coccidiosis, um, any bacteria and bird flu. So I think um, that is something that can be learned from um, actually moving away from spin- spinning. Dare I say, is it the end of spinning feed um, and also just giving them wheat. So if we're saying our returns are 30, 40% on the shoot, how do we improve those returns It's always been like a golden question, but um, we give them an average wheat. It's hard. It's boring. It's repetitive. Uh, it's hard for the, bur- the bird to really metabolize and break that down to something useful for them to build on. Um, why not add in kibbled maize, some sunflower seeds, um, oyster grit, whatever else it is, um or or do some sort of 80% pelleted feed or something like that so it gets them interested Um and, but keeps them in the hopper fed as well so you're reducing that disease transmission route but you're still keeping them interested we you know we're pushing these birds quite hard sometimes but we're giving them an average to poor feed and expecting yeah. a lot from them so I think that's something that can change
0: well, we, we, I think we've got Jamie coming on quite soon, haven't we, Diggers? So we'll put that to him and see what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll well, a you...
2: phone call from him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's
0: dangerous, isn't it? But <laughs> actually, that, actually I, well, I was going to say, uh, Diggers. When we wrote that question about the the common mistakes, I, I sort of was thinking about what I expected you to say. Do you find that people phone you up when it's already too late? uh or you know that the the, 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 the birds have already got sort of the the disease has already run its way through the flock and there's nothing to be
2: done It's always frustrating when you know somebody who only puts down a thousand birds has lost 200 and that's the point they call you um you know 200 is not many birds in the grand scheme of things but for that shoot it's a lot of birds and we are way way too down the line And, and it's very sad because i do see some some shoots or and or game farms that some batches of birds are beyond the point of, of saving, which is, is incredibly sad to see. So yes, that is frustrating, especially as bringing up us is it's free. We work twenty four hours a day. Um, you know, don't don't be afraid to just pick up the phone and say, I think something's going on. And we might say, don't worry about it, let's monitor it for twenty four hours. But yeah, that can be frustrating. But I would say in the last five years that has reduced and there is far more proactiveness you know with with the auditing with um uh, looking at how they can become more efficient and and there is definitely a more proactiveness out there which is great
1: what's interesting is you said that um a shoot with a thousand birds so do you pick up uh inquiries from any shoot or yeah do
2: you any any shoot big or small we don't we don't uh we don't we don't look down 20, on on somebody
1: i'll be calling you up at uh three o'clock in the morning <laughs> saying one oh. of my 150 pheasants has um i <laughs> could you not? Its toe. I, in my early <laughs>
2: days in my early days i had to keep uh he only he only reared 500 birds and he rung me up at three o'clock in the morning sat in the middle of it uh, no uh, he was wandering around the shed saying they're all dying they're huddling i cannot work. what's going on it was three o'clock in the morning i mean i i was barely but well, i wasn't awake um Anyway, we just talked through it and he went in and I said, just sit in the shed. So he sat in the shed. Half an hour later, he runs me back and says, yeah, there's a horrible draft coming up. And they just huddled because of the draft. So, you know, 500 birds. Doesn't matter. We save those birds. I don't care if it's 500 birds or 500,000 birds. Um, I enjoy it all, really. And sometimes the smaller shoots can give you the biggest surprises or the biggest learning curves, um, which I really enjoy.
1: That's really nice to know, actually. Really nice to hear. And I expect probably some of the biggest rewards as well. Because when yeah. you um, when you're saving someone's season over yeah. you know two hundred birds, it's quite a kind of thing. Yeah, it's isn't a
2: it? good kickback for the job. It is. It's not really a job, is it? I, it's a vocation.
1: I love it. So yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, same with us. And what um, just on on the sort of vocation side of things, where do you see from a vet's perspective the the shooting world changing in the next five years? What do you think is going to be the big um, shift? I guess. In, in light of bird flu, people are seeing it as a potentially an opportunity to change the way we do things. Do you yeah. see there being a shift over the next five years? What do you reckon will be the biggest change? Um, I,
2: For me, it, it's, a, it's a hope. Um, I hope the biggest change is that we all get on board with auditing. Um, if you look at any other food producing sector, uh, in fact, any other sector, uh, you know, feed feed mills, they have audits continuously to, to just make sure everybody's questioning what they do, moving forward, minimum levels of standards, biosecurity, all those kind of things. Um, so, you know, there is so much good work out there that goes underrepresented uh, to the public, um, and, and each to ourselves. So I, for me, the next five years involves auditing, uh, standing proud with what we do, Making some tweaks without a doubt, making some changes, learning from the, the birth flu, learning from supply chain changes, learning from all those kind of things. Um, and actually being more resilient, more efficient, um, and more sustainable, uh, for the environment from, from, you know, really recording how much positive stuff we do and getting that out into the public domain. Um, and standing behind our auditors and saying, you know what, we are self audited. We are third party audited by the guys that do the red tractor they know exactly what's going on and we can stand proud with what we're producing as as a food item as well as impacting and improving in the environment so that that for me is a key focus to be sustainable in the eyes of the public
0: yeah i think that's a really good message actually and um i think it's fair to say that sort of in the early days of auditing there was some resistance um do you see that sort of lessening as time goes on that people are more accepting of it and it come back comes back to the sort of inertia where well, we've always done it like this kind of thing doesn't it <laughs> do you think people are kind of a bit more comfortable with the with the notion now that's been around a bit
2: I wish I could say yes but I <laughs> I, I hate audits I you know we as apprentices we get audits and they are an absolute pain in the bottom um I it's paperwork trails and it is a hassle and it is a headache uh, whether it's a whether it's a simple easy breezy audit or something that's really in depth for me the ones that are in depth are the ones that are worth doing you can anybody can get a badge that says oh yeah you've done a good job well done but it doesn't mean anything. you need something yeah. that you can stand behind be defensible and be proud of and you know a lot of these guys have got sheeps, um, uh, sheeps, <laughs> sheep, uh, and uh, <laughs> and pigs and, and cattle and or, or crops, and they've all got audits on various levels to be able to sell those uh, as as a commodity. So you know the concept of that is not difficult. Of course, it doesn't require some change, um, but I think that's where I'm, I'm seeing some of the younger guys really take it on and drive that. No, yes, I think it'd be fair to say that in the early days of bringing in on the concept of audits, that there were some cock ups, let's let's not beat around the bush, there were some cock ups. Um, maybe there were some not ideas brought in that were that good or that were different and were too too hard, too strong. Absolutely. But I think it's, let's move on from that. That's, um, let's, let's make our sector more sustainable. And all the thing is part of that. And um, You know, we're doing uh, a lot of visits where you can, where we just talk to the customer, go through, look, these are the common areas where people might, might struggle to pass. So these are the three things you've got to focus on. A lot of it is actually really simple stuff that once it's in place, it's repeatable every year. It just is there. Um, and it doesn't actually cost that much at all, um, in relation to what we're doing. And if, if for instance, a shoot or a game farm, um Has the Defra come out and, or, or, or somebody who's anti-shooting says there's something wrong with that farm? You can go out and you can say, well, actually, no, the auditor's been there and they're happy with that. And Defra will listen to that and they'll know how audits work and they'll know the checklist. and It and it can be used as a, an in, I don't want to say an insurance policy, but as a, de, a defensible tool to say, actually, know what I know what I'm doing is right and whatever you've been told is wrong. Um, And that does the stand up. So, yeah, I think I think there's definitely room to keep going with that for sure.
0: I think it's a very positive outlook, really. Um, So I think on a positive note, we're going to start wrapping up Um, to finish every episode of the Shoot Hub podcast. We're going to ask our guests the same question. So Kenny, if you had the power to change just one thing about shooting and everyone had to comply uh upon pain of death, um what would it be
2: <laughs> <laughs> say the best to last, won't you um what would it be um I would oh god uh, what would it be it would be to show the public how much positive stuff we do for the environment i think it's something that we undersell yeah,
1: yeah. And, uh, yeah.
2: a lot um i think it's very easy to portray the negatives uh from, from the press point of view because it sells newspapers for sure um but i think if you actually spoke to the the vast majority of crowd and you say how much money and time those keepers and estates spend on the environment it is astronomical And I think that's the best thing about what we do. So it would be to be able to shout louder and prouder about that side of the sector.
1: Yeah. So there you go, listeners, keepers and shoot managers. On pain of death, Kenny tells you to, I don't know, (laughs) tell tell people. Shout from the um, treetops. Shout from the treetops. I mean, tell your, um, you know, the robins and things in the hedgerows, or is it going to local schools or um, get involved in the village life? uh, Yeah. You must have seen some people doing it really well.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's uh, some of the Yorkshire Moor guys. They uh they get out and about into the, into the in the schools and just talk about it. And I've got a, a gamekeeper uh, from a very prestigious estate in the Cotswolds, and he does talks with the with the school in their village. They come out, they look at some of the some dead stuff, of course, because. That's what people do. So, you know, looking at, you know, the, a, a mole or, or what, you know, some sort of um pheasant or whatever it is and do some postmortems and, and show them some hatching and all that kind of stuff. Um And I think it's just, I think we are misunderstood and misrepresented a lot of the time. Um So I think it's just towing that line with, with people you see and just be proud of what we do.
0: Yeah. And I guess, you know, even something as simple as, you know, using social media effectively to, highlight you know to you know if something interesting is going on there's an unusual bird species that you see or whatever it is don't just go oh that's cool quick I photo tell you it, whack it on instagram
1: phenomenally is jamie again jamie horner one of the guests we can have on soon have you seen his um his red list species list no, he keeps on his shoot it's absolutely brilliant I'll, I'll we'll have to get him to share it with us and then we'll put it up on um our socials because he's um he keeps a record every single species on the red amber list he sees around his shoot and it is just page after page. It's it's, it's yeah, really impressive. Um, yeah, one small example. What a great first um, first. I don't know what decree. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Um, Kenny, thanks ever so much for making the time. Thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Kenny. Very much.
0: right so that's it it's our first episode done Um, we really hope you enjoyed it and maybe found it useful and interesting Um, do get in touch to let us know what you thought let us know what you liked let us know what you didn't like Um, you can email pod at gunsonpegs.com please do also get in touch and share your favorite beating noise with us Uh, just record yourself into your phone and send us the mp3 as an attachment on an email or send it as a voice note on instagram or whatever way you get it to us we'll work out how to get it out uh, and um Uh, get it into an episode Um, we'd also love your suggestions for more either or questions for the beginning to help us get to know our guests again uh, you can email all of that stuff to pod at gunsonpegs.com we will be back in a few weeks time with another special guest but until then stay safe out there and thanks for listening